Hello, everyone. I'm Raja, and this is the Qafat Podcast, conversations around arts and culture. On this adventure, I connect with talented artists, aspiring entrepreneurs, and cultural activists from around the world. In each episode, I'd invite a guest with whom I discuss a relevant subject of the cultural and artistic field, learn more about their journey, and bring them a little closer to you. All of this in a friendly, warm, chatty environment. My guest for today is Bungie Chana, who is a Zambian activist. She's a digital archiver, writer, sustainable designer. Her work is centered largely around the sociopolitical and cultural promotion and preservation of the Southern African identity, narrative and aesthetic, with heavy focus on Zambian ecosystems. Banji is now the founder and head designer of Mkanda, which is a fashion line driven by the desire of uniqueness, inspired by a mix of African high fashion and Western style. She's also a digital curator of African archives. Well, thank you first for being here today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for wanting to have this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you. So, Bandi, I want to start with the question about your uh, social cultural background. So you lived in Zambia and South Africa in your early life, right? Mm -hmm. And then you moved to the UK for your university studies. So how do you think living in this different cultures actually shaped your personality of today? So I think I've both left slices of my heart in all the places I've lived in, but also carried pieces of them with me. Um, so living in South Africa and living in Zambia affirmed my identity as a Black African woman Mm-hmm. in loads of different ways and living in Europe affirmed my identity in lots of different ways but in more of a counter because I was a black Zambian woman in a very white space mm-hmm. um, even within the African diaspora there weren't many Zambians around so that in its own way also affirmed who I am now and added little nuances to my personality so I think Being able to live in different countries really has enriched not just my personality, but my knowledge base, my mm-hmm. cultural base, and I think has just made me an all-round better person, dare mm-hmm. I say. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just curious also about the question of identity when it comes uh, to origins. So for me, I've lived my whole life between Sally and Rabat. And, but this is a common question between Moroccans. Like when you meet someone, they usually ask you, what, what are your origins? And usually you refer it to your parents' uh, home city or home like country. Um, and But for me, I always find it like, Um, not very me if I say that I'm from my parent, like where from where my parents come. So do you do you feel like you're more connected to Zambia or South Africa or yeah? What, what do you think um, of you? I mean, that's such an interesting question to ask. I guess third culture kids, mm-hmm. where are you from? Especially when you're from so many different places. So off the bat, if somebody asks me, where are you from? I will say I'm Zambian Mm -hmm. by birth and by descent. 
but I will nuance that and say, but I grew up in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I went through my early 20s in the UK. Now I'm living in Italy. So it's all a bit of a mishmash. Um, but I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day about this concept of home identity and belonging. Mm-hmm. And they said something really profound to me. And they said, you know what? Instead of asking people, where are you from? It might be better to ask them, where do you feel most at home? Right. You know, because that is not really drawing on, I guess, as you said, where your parents are from mm-hmm. or where you just happen to be born. Because home to me isn't just four walls, you know, right. ground. Right. It's, it's more of a, a metaphysical, emotional feeling. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so with that being said, where do I feel most at home? I guess wherever I'm around people I love or things that I love, I, I feel at home within myself. I carry home within me. So wherever I go is where home is, really. Yeah, right. Because um, for me, the, the again, like the question of identity when it comes to origins is kind of growing with biological parents and then parents that raised you. Um, Mm -hmm. If I took myself as an example, uh, if like I grew up with parents other than my biological parents, I wouldn't feel really connected to my biological parents, even if if I met them like after a long time. So I think Mm -hmm. it's the same, yeah. You feel more connected to uh, the place where you have family, friends, where you feel home, yeah. Exactly, exactly. All right, so, uh, shall we move to talk a little bit about your work? So again, I know that you're um, uh, a cultural activist. So your work revolves around the um, the preservation of the Southern African um, identity. So how do you think being both a curator and sustainable designer can empower the communities, like uh, socially and economically speaking? Mm. So. As you said, I, I consider myself an artivist. That is a mm-hmm. slightly pretentious title I choose to go by, but I think it um, encapsulates what I do really well. Um, and in my artivism, I'm not just creating for the end purpose of an end product. Mm-hmm. I'm creating in a more circular way um, or cyclical way. And by that, I mean in my process of production and even in my end result, there has to be some level of social impact. So with my um, digital curating or my archiving, I am doing it to to preserve culture and to be the conveyor or the person that tells the stories that have for years and years and years been neglected or sidelined that is the story of people from Zambia. Um, and like to nuance my, my digital curator archivist title, I go by Zambezian archivist, and that's derived from the river Zambezi, which uh, has its source in Zambia. Um, and it flows all the way through Angola, Mozambique, and ends up in the Indian Ocean. And I picked Zambezi as the name for the archive because it's such a a vast, a big river, Mm -hmm. right? And big rivers have big stories to tell. And I feel like storytelling 
in the African context and more, more contexts is a means to preserve identity. And identity of Zambian people and African people as a whole has been assailed from so many different directions, whether that was through imperialism, colonialism, neo-colonialism, capitalism, all the isms, you know, are like arrows coming at us. So I think it's important, not just for like current generations, but for the generations to come to be able to have a guide, a reference, an archive to say, oh, okay, this is what it was uh, in 2020, or this is what it was in 1964, or this is what it was like in the 1930s. Because to be able to navigate life, I think, in a meaningful way, you need to know where you're coming from, right? And that's my... That's my goal, to give people a roadmap, to give Zambian people an identity roadmap. Because when you know yourself, everything else becomes much easier, you know? Right, yeah, um, that makes sense. And, yeah, and with Nkanda, it's uh, the same concept of social responsibility. So with that, um, it's a sustainable brand and I upcycle or recycle everything I use. And not just that aspect, but I think that the wider social element comes in, in that I use local ecosystems as best as I can. So I think a good example of that would be um, a bead studio, a glass bead studio I've partnered mm -hmm. with. And so they're based in Livingston and they're a social enterprise of seven women um, who before this project were unemployed. Um, so they were identified as uh, crafters who were able to, I guess, to, to take the business forward or who were identified as people who had the gusto to change their lives. And they were given that opportunity to do that. And when I look for partners, I'm looking for projects like that that also don't just want to work towards producing something, putting it on the market and getting it out there. Mm -hmm. There should be a more mindful or cyclical, um, cyclical way in which it's working, in which these frameworks are working. Um, so that, I think, is extremely important to me that I purposely choose to work with, endorse, train, participate in things that, I guess, feed into the wider social responsibility sphere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to go back to the point where you talked about um, the importance of being a curator and like um, allow Zambians to have a deeper knowledge about their, their history. Um, I, I'm just curious, like, as, um, as a Zambian, what, what, what would the, what do you think people should know about Zambia? Would you think like something specific to Zambia as a Moroccan that I would love to know something about your country? What do you think you would tell You're me about it? <laughs> so I think dissecting any topic and looking at it monolithically is always really difficult because you run a risk of making sweeping generalizations. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, Zambia is a country that has about 72 ethnic groups 
72 ethnic groups. Um, So to be able to say, oh, this is something Zambian, I think would be slightly wrong of me to do. Mm -hmm. But I can speak on, I guess, Zambian spirituality, even though it is nuanced in its manifestations, what I have found is a lot of Zambian spirituality is very connected to nature and very connected to to the earth and the earth cycles and the moon and just cosmically, um, it's very cosmically intertwined. Um, And I'm from the Bemba tribe and the Tonga tribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of my favorite words in both languages have the same root but different pronunciations. Um, That's Mwezi in Tonga and Mweshi in Mm -hmm. Bemba. And both these words essentially mean moon, but also mean month. And that goes to show how interconnected that these two tribes are with the cosmos. Like they use the moon to tell time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely special um, playing on that, or not really playing on, but just appreciating and really delving into our interconnectedness as not just Africans, but human beings with yeah. the planet we live on, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's fun thing about Zambia. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree with you. Because I know in Morocco also there is this idea of it's just the Sahara and the camels and Marrakesh. Um, but when we look at Morocco, it, it has more of the uh, Saharan camels in Marrakesh, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it, it will be unfair to a country to limit it to just two things or like uh, limited stuff to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, tell me a little bit more about your work, like the the process. Um, from where do you get your uh, your materials like how, in general how does it work okay so with zambezi archives i mm-hmm. guess i've got loads of different work processes depending on what it is i'm working on because i am um, i've got my my finger in many pots i think that's what the saying is mm-hmm. um but with zambezi archives it's a lot of research um and Lucky for me, I've got the internet, which is a well of knowledge. So I use loads of different sources. So blogs um, by other people, uh, essays, Mm -hmm. um, research papers, just a whole bunch of things. And then when I am in Zambia physically, I have access to the National Archives, um, which I go to. So essentially, it's just collecting uh, information sorting the information out into various sects or segments in which it fits so curating Mm -hmm. and then putting that into a project or a collective and then making that and packaging that as a deliverable for the audience Um, so that's a little bit more straightforward in a sense i guess Mm -hmm. Um, and with inkanda as i said everything is upcycled 
Okay. So I'll often upcycled or recycled. So I already mentioned the Sashemo Bead Studio. Mm-hmm. They make their beads out of glass, discarded glass bottles. So I'm using that as my main um, my main bead in my jewelry. Mm-hmm. And another um, material I use is leather. And I've partnered with a bag company in Zambia that's also a social enterprise um, framework. Mm-hmm. And they give me their leather offcuts. So all their offcuts that they would ordinarily throw away, I take that and I make it into string to string my necklaces on or to have as my bracelet, um, my bracelet frames essentially. So I, I just, I, I have to be resourceful when it mm-hmm. comes to, to the jewelry making, because there are specific types of materials that you need to produce a piece of jewelry. But that isn't just limited to things you can find in a shop. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be times I'll go outside and look for seeds from trees or just, yeah, uh, unconventional materials. Think out of the box, mm-hmm. you know? And that doesn't only make my product a little bit more unique and interesting thinking out the box, but it also means I'm really being conscious and mindful of what it is I'm using. And that was the entire goal of creating Inkanda in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Doing things with what you have in hand. Exactly. Right. Using Mm -hmm. what you have. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the beautiful thing about um, uh, social entrepreneurship. It helps engaging people with, uh, I mean, local uh, community in the process of producing um, things like what you do now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, though, um, I think entrepreneurship is very interesting, but um, the, especially the creative culture entrepreneurship is not taking enough space in a discussion. Um, yeah, my, my brother is, uh, is, will be in 11th grade this, uh, this year. And he has many options of what to study in high school. And one day I sit with him and my sister and we're trying to navigate all the options that he has. And he came across the um, applied arts option. It's like, yes, that's what I want to do. That seems really interesting. And I was like, okay, you're sure about this? And me and my sister tried to just give him a little bit like insights of what the future will hold if he did applied arts. And then we we had to go and talk to our parents about it. And we're thinking about how shall we phrase this? How shall we just go and tell my my parents that this is what he wants to do? So yeah, I think um, uh, as much as this field is really interesting and it can help one once grow and learn about other cultures and, and arts in general, but it's also perceived as not a good way to make a living. It's true. It's true that there are these preconceived notions of art and artists and culture and cultural operators and its sustainability financially. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can attest to the fact that the creative industry or the art industry in many countries um, actually brings in a good amount of GDP. You know, I think that's part of the untold narrative, Mm because when people are talking economics or finance or financial security, there will often be things like, oh, do law, 
be a doctor, do X, Y, Z, and art or creative studies are often on the bottom of the list. And I think that's something that can be changed with um, time and perception and perseverance. I mean, on, on the other hand, it's not the job of artists and creative people to prove to people that what they're doing is worth it, yeah. you know, financially or otherwise. Um, but I think there is a need for society to just deconstruct and reconstruct the way that they look at art and artists. Um, because I mean, beyond economics and finance, art and culture are global languages, you know, and they're unifiers. And it's how we, the primary way in which we learn from each other as people living in different segments, sectors, places on the globe yeah. and I think it has intrinsic value as it is and it doesn't need seven zeros on the end of it for it to be worth it yeah um, but in some cases it is I mean if uh, if you look at the price of paintings there's some of them that cost a lot of money like, cost like a firstborn child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's besides the point because things have value beyond what capitalism dictates their value is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but sometimes, don't you think that visual arts can be a little bit overrated? Um, some paintings that they have some prices that they're actually insane and and then you wonder what actually makes something so valuable is it the person that can afford it can buy it just um because they have money or is it the paint in itself that it's really um valuable i think it might be a mix of the two because i understand where you're coming from and that a lot of art is completely ridiculous in mm -hmm. its pricing and I think that is a byproduct of art having been such an elitist fear throughout mm -hmm. history um, like if you look at the history of art or culture or opera or different elements in the cultural industry they were originally uh, targeted towards people who had tons of money and that isn't something that has decreased over time. Um, it's something that's still very prevalent in the arts and culture sphere. Though I think at the minute, um, there's been a shift in accessibility to art mm -hmm. because of the internet and digitization, um, which is great on the accessibility front, but it's also great in that there isn't this financial cap that keeps art away from someone or keeps art to a certain group of people. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your original question about how does a piece of art derive its value, I think that's just, it's arbitrary. It's arbitrary mm -hmm. because there'll be times you'll see the most beautiful piece of visual art yeah. and it could cost you like 15 bucks. And then you see this bloody monstrosity and someone's gone and put $5 million on the yeah. tag. You know, it's like, how? 
Um, but again, um, art is a subjective, extremely subjective topic. Um, but yeah, there's a subjectivity and the arbitrary yeah. nature of it, which mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, that's, that's what my answer would be. Yeah, <laughs> but the good, the, the good thing is at least, as you said, the art is now accessible to many people than ever before. Again, with the digitalization and, uh, and also I think is the work of uh, Novice uh, painters, if I would say so, that they're, I think they're given more um, chances for people to afford a painting than ever, than ever before, right? That's true, that's true. But I mean, back to the digitization of art, um, this is kind of like a counter to my original point, stating that it's a, a good thing. And on the whole, it is a good thing. But I think there is a risk. We run a risk um, through the digitization of art of devaluing it slightly, mm-hmm. because there will be like a situation in which you have this extremely beautiful painting or sculpture and it just ends up being sandwiched in between people's selfies or mm-hmm. pictures of their chihuahuas, you know? And I think there's so much more value to art than being the middle of a selfie sandwich. Um, but again, subjectivity and freedom to do as you please with what you have, including digitized art. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, when do you want to talk to you about um, the topic of cultural appropriation? Um, and yeah, just this uh, morning, I was checking Facebook and I came across this hashtag that it's going so viral that it says, my babouche is not Celine. And when I start reading about the topic, I found that the, the French brand Celine is actually selling... Uh, Bilga, which is a particular Moroccan slipper, uh, for 900 euros, which is equivalent to 9,000 dirhams. And in my country, artisans make them and sell them for 20 to 100 dirhams, mm. which is a com- which is so different from what the brand is selling. And yeah, and I just thought that this is very unfair to, um, to my local community. So I'm wondering, what, where can you spot the cultural appropriation in the, um, in the fashion industry, especially that you're, that you're working in the fashion industry? And what are your thoughts about this, uh, this phenomenon? I mean, cultural appropriation is very much a power-based phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it's usually about a majority culture taking from a minority culture. And this just isn't limited to like the West taking from the South or the East, but it's also, I guess, big brands taking from smaller brands or artisans, as you said. And it's extremely harmful in that it decreases the accessibility of certain cultural products that Mm -hmm. were say, indigenous to a specific place, 
um, when they become commercialized. This is a completely different example and not fashion related at all. But for example, the market demand for quinoa mm -hmm. um, when it became globalized shot up. And quinoa is originally a South American grain. And when the market price for it shot up um, in the global community, the market price for it shot up back in South America. So the average person who had quinoa as their staple food wasn't able to afford it anymore. And it's, it's a little bit different with, I guess, cultural products um, because I guess in a way they aren't a necessity to living, <laughs> mm -hmm. not like food, but there still is this harmful um, nature or harmful repercussion in taking something that isn't yours just because you can, you know, and not crediting the origins of it. So, oh, bloody hell. Marc Jacobs, uh, Comme des Garçons, a lot of high, yeah. high, high street, not high street fashion, but high fashion brands mm. will often take elements from smaller cultures and one, not to do the research, know what it is that they're taking, why it exists in the way that it does. And they just take it and pop it on the catwalk and they say, okay, this is going to sell because it's interesting. Yeah. And oftentimes it will, it will because you're selling it to, I guess, an audience of people that isn't aware or aren't aware of where it came from. And that is harmful in that you're rewriting a story that isn't yours to tell. Right. You know? um, so, for example, the, the type of slipper that you're talking about, mm -hmm. Salid is going to market it and sell it to a wider audience than uh, a craftsman in the streets of Rabat or Marrakesh will exactly. do. And then it will be called like the Celine slipper as opposed to what it's actually called. And that is something very much power-based, you know, yeah. being able to just hijack people's culture and cash crop on it, uh, which is not acceptable in the slightest. Um, yeah. And capitalism as a system doesn't make that easier because a lot of individuals and companies, conglomerates are just interested in making money and morals and ethics sometimes override uh, or are overridden by yeah. money, which is a massive shame. Yeah. But yeah, if you're listening to this and you are a cultural appropriator, check yourself before yeah. you wreck yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and sometimes I don't know, I think it's also the responsibility of citizens. I know some people that they would rather go and shop online and buy things that they're proper to the Moroccan cultures instead of going to the market, to the local market and buy from local people. So yeah, yeah again, I think sometimes it's the responsibility of people again. True. And I think that's linked to desirability. We need to reframe local as desirable mm -hmm. uh, because coming from an African country that has been colonized in one way or other, your identity would have been made to feel small 
or to feel insignificant over time. So you find that when people climb up this social ladder, they want more international brands in their closets or in their houses. And that's not because intrinsically Western or non-local brands are better. Mm -hmm. It's because that's what's been fed to us for years and years and years that what you've got at home is not good enough, you know? So that goes beyond, I guess, easy frameworks to deconstruct. It's longstanding cultural, political um, turmoil, basically. Mm -hmm. I think we'll take a while for people to to be able to take a step back from, uh, deconstruct and reconstruct, mm-hmm. which I think is happening um, quite a lot in the fashion industry um, over the last couple of years. There's been more of a spurt in Zambia, for example, more of a spurt of support for local brands. Like there are more warehouses or shops, mm-hmm. um, cafes that are focusing on stocking and supplying people with Zambian products. And I think that's important because it's not that there's not a market for it. There's absolutely a market for it because the quality is high. um, Artistic production is high. Just the innovation is high. You know, it's just about teaching people that our self-worth is still there you know but it needs to be built up upon because it has been um assailed so often yeah. uh, so that's that's a that's a big paradigmal shift that's going to have to happen you know um but it's possible totally yeah. possible yeah it's true coming from developing countries, third countries, even if I don't like the word that much. Um, when you grew up with this idea that you've been colonized your whole life, and speaking about Morocco, I think uh, we still have uh, colonization um, until today, just in a different form, right? Um, it's really difficult to change your mind, to shift your mind to the idea that you're, you can do something great. And, um, but again, also the messages the media send. Oh, the US, oh, the, the, I don't know, Europe is better. And, but when you, when you uh, like bring topics to table with people who are from the superior cultures, you just realize that they have something to complain about as well. And you just realize that, okay, I have something in my country, in my own culture that, that it's really nice and it's not that bad as I was uh, perceiving it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, um, especially like, uh, young people, which are the future of the countries need to shift their minds and need to be more proud of what they got and do with what they have. Um, and, and it's, it's not, it's not a bad thing to, uh, um, I mean, to start from, from nothing or just do with whatever you have again. Yeah. Make the best of what you've got. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Do what you can with what you've got. That's yeah. To go back to the idea that uh, colonization, I think uh, the question of intellectual imperialism is a very important question for 
especially African societies to address nowadays. Um, because um, imperialism cannot just take the form of political or uh, economic, but it can take the form of cultural as well. Mm. So, yeah. Um, um, what do you think the, uh, the government or the citizens themselves can do to, um, yeah, to help with establishing the, the idea of like having your own identity and like defend it and, and like fight the cultural appropriation? Yeah, I think know your history. Uh -huh. This goes back to the first thing I said is to know where you're going and to know how to get there, you need to know where you're coming from. So on the topic of intellectual or cultural imperialism, an example that I like to allude to often is within the LGBTQI plus sphere. Mm -hmm. um, there is this conception that LGBTQI plus is a Western import and it was brought to Africa uh, via the West. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was doing some research a while ago and it's absolutely not true. Um, so many different manifestations of this umbrella existed in Africa in pre-colonial times. And the fact that not many African people know that and know their history is why people come up with the retort to, oh, we can't accept gay people in our country because this isn't what our country is about. Mm -hmm. And like, do you even know what your history is, right? <laughs> and that is why colonialism, imperialism worked towards erasing identity and culture so much mm -hmm. because if somebody doesn't know their identity or culture, it's very easy to take over their minds. Yeah. You know, if you don't have this cultural consciousness, you've got this blank slate that can be injected with ideas and ideals that wouldn't originally be in that space of consciousness. And the flip side of that, which really upsets me, is that now Western countries are being seen as the pioneers for, for gay rights um, and things within that sphere. When it's like, hold up, 64, more than 64 years ago, more than 100, actually, imperialism started ages ago. I was just yeah. using Zambia's independence year as a reference for some mm -hmm. odd reason. But a while ago, your um, forefathers in the form of missionaries and um, soldiers came to us here in Africa, Zambia, disrupted our ways of living, um, completely reconfigured the way that we think about this to make us anti whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then now you have the rights to say, oh, Uganda, you need to decriminalize um, you need to uh, scrap your, your gay law. And I mean, Uganda and everywhere else absolutely must because everyone is entitled to their freedom. Mm -hmm. But I think the West needs to take higher 
sense of accountability mm. or responsibility when it comes to this being a product of their meddling, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, if you don't know your history, then you will very easily be swept by a wave of uh, brainwashing. Yeah. And with this, we've come to the end of our conversation. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate your support. Subscribe and share with anyone who would enjoy listening to our conversation and derive something out of it. If you have any other thoughts, ideas, opinions, please feel free to send me a message on the podcast page or the social media platform. This year, we have been through some difficult times. The culture creative field has been badly impacted. And as a part of this vibrant community, I would like to use my voice to encourage you to support your local artists, small creative business owners, and anyone else who needs a hand. A little help can go a long way. See you in the next episode. Thank you.